0: This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for February twenty sixth, 2012. The Gospel was taken from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. The message is by Father Ron Baird. That's something to you. Um, the Gospel of Mark is probably my least favorite gospel to preach on because he leaves out any details I mean, we have this story where the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove in the baptism, a voice booms from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the entire temptation story is summed up in one sentence. And immediately the Spirit drove him in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, where he was ministered to by wild beasts and angels. That's it. <laughs> I'm thinking, gee, you know, you could have at least Matthew and Luke fill in a couple of things about what happened besides he was tempted. But it does sort of beg the question, doesn't it, is why is this what is the consequence of this baptism? Seems like a non sequitur, doesn't it? That here um, Jesus is being baptized and he's told John elsewhere that, that, that let it be in accordance with the scriptures so they might be fulfilled. And here he is baptized and and he comes up out of the water and the voice says this is my son the beloved and then immediately he's driven into the wilderness I mean what do we usually do after a baptism yeah <laughs> maybe we should drive all the babies out into the wilderness for 40 days uh, I mean what, what is that about why is he driven out into the wilderness and, and to really understand that it takes a little bit of knowledge of the old testament and what has gone on in the old testament jesus is driven into the desert um they call it a wilderness by the way it's i grew up in kentucky a wilderness brings to mind daniel boone in my mind but not 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 a desert but this is a desert and he's driven into this desert like the israelites were driven into the desert Remember that story? Moses delivers Israel from bondage in Egypt and brings them out of bondage. And he goes up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, you know, the tablets. And as Charlton Heston brings them down, um, and, um, they've gotten there. And what he discovers is they've melted all their gold and built a golden calf to worship. And he smashes them in two. But after all that's finished, do you remember what happens to the Israelites? Now, where are they going? Promised land, but what happens? <laughs> they were afraid to, They were afraid to ask directions. Actually, I think there weren't wasn't anybody to ask. <clears throat> no gas stations. <clears throat> they wandered, it says, <clears throat> in the wilderness for 40 years, but what's important is to know what the name of the wilderness is. It is the wilderness of sin. Now, why do you think it got the name the Wilderness of Sin? Yeah. You see, a lot of times we forget that God wants them to understand what it's like to miss the mark, to not do that which God created us to be and do. They're on their way to the Promised Land, and the shortcut, by the way, is blocked, They do try that, but get driven back. And as a result, God just leads them wandering around in this desert for 40 years. And we have all sorts of grumbling and complaining about, you know, manna, 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 it's all we ever get to eat. You know, just constant discontent and unhappiness. And they have to do this for 40 years before the next generation can finally come and inherit the promised land that God had intended for them. Because when you miss the mark there are always consequences. You know, a lot of times we seem to think that we can get away with it, but the truth is there's consequences to anything that happens that isn't what God had planned. Now What is Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days got to do that? Well, the 40 obviously is a symbol of the 40 years that the Israelites spent. But still, what would Jesus went and was baptized even though he didn't have any sin. And now he's being driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Even though he doesn't have sin. So why is he in this wilderness? Well, it really has to do with salvation. What it is that we are being saved from and if you look back in um, the Old Testament lesson today with the story of Noah do you remember what happens after the rain clears and the waters begin to subside God sets a sign in the heavens and we always know it was a rainbow that isn't what it said though, is it? what, what does it say? a bow now, if I said to you, I'm going to bring my bow with me, would you automatically assume I was bringing a rainbow? No. What What would you assume I was bringing? You know, a bow, what? <laughs> a violin. have hadn't thought about that. I know I get accused of fiddling around too much, but... Uh, <laughs> Most people, when you think of bow, would think of a bow and arrow, right? That's because that's what the word sin really means. It's actually used in target practice. Um, When the archers of Israel would line up and they would shoot at the target, if they totally missed the target, completely missed it altogether, then it was said that they sinned. That was what the name of it was. They missed the mark. That's how we literally translate it. But they just missed completely. That's a sin. Now, why do you think God would set a bow in the sky at this point? Isn't that interesting that that's what he chooses to be the sign that he won't destroy the earth by water anymore? Well, to do that, you have to go back. Why did he destroy the earth by water? Because people were wicked and they'd sinned gone their own way. And I can remember growing up and hearing, he won't destroy the world by water anymore, but there's nothing to say he can't destroy it by fire. (laughs) I thought, I don't know, that's comforting. But he puts this bow in the sky. It's to tell us something about God. God doesn't miss, ever. God's aim is always true. And the reason why the bow has been put into the sky is not to remind god not to destroy the earth but to remind us that god's aim is true so that still sort of begs the question though so what good does that do us doesn't it i mean god's aim is true and well good for him i mean how do how do we get there and that's where jesus comes back in in the desert the reason jesus was driven into the wilderness wasn't because he had sinned or done something wrong and had to suffer It was so that he could begin to do what his mission was. Do you all remember what his mission was? And how does he do that? And what does he do on the cross? But did him just die. The thieves died too. He did something else on the cross. Hmm? Boy, those are big words. It's true, but it's a big word. What does that mean? He takes our sins on him, and that's the beginning of it, is in the desert, because now the devil comes to tempt him. Fine, you're going to take on the sins of the world. Let me help you understand exactly what you're getting into. Now, with me, he could just bring ice cream, and it would probably be all over with pretty easily, but, but Jesus, obviously, is a much tougher case. And so the things that he offers him are really ways to fix the world. You know, the first thing he offers him is is food because he says he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and he's famished. Seems to me to be one of the bigger understatements in all of Scripture. um, And it says, so the devil tempts him to turn the rock into stone, which Jesus refuses to do. Now, I have to tell you honestly, if it had been me, the rock would have been a pizza long before the devil ever got there. He wouldn't even have to ask probably. But, but you know, he, he comes and he tempts him. First out of his own humanity and his craving, but then with his mission. Tempting him to say, you know, everything on heaven and earth has been given to me. I will give it to you. You can fix all of these problems. You don't have to die. With one wave of your hand, the earth will obey you. Are there any times you'd like to have that power? Maybe with your spouse, with your kids, with your co workers, with your dog. <laughs> I mean, and that's the temptation, is to say, don't do it that way, do it this way it would be so much easier. And it would, except that it wouldn't solve the problem. Because if he did that, what would that mean about this bow that God has set in the sky? It would be a fake, wouldn't he? Even God doesn't hit the mark. And so... Jesus is led into the desert to experience what it is like to be tempted by sin. It is his first taste of how sin is going to come upon him. Sin that is undeserved in his case, but it still will come upon him and will be his. And, and he sees it over and over and over again. You know, he sees it in people who try to thwart his mission by proclaiming his name early. You know, before you know, shouting out like the demons did. We see it uh, as he confronts it in the, in the case of illness, you know, the people who are sick, the brokenness of the world, the lepers, and, and the fear that you could become contaminated by them. And would you actually touch these people you know, and risk the, the infection or you know, the, the death that may come with it, and that you would be ostracized too? We see it even amongst his disciples as they jockey for position in the kingdom of God. We see it in the envy of the people who want to have what Jesus has and want what he can give them. And so he's constantly having to move on to the next town as people miss the mark and miss the point. This sin that that has taken over the world is something that Jesus Christ has to take upon himself. And not just part of it, but all of it to carry it all to the cross and to its death and to do so he has to die too and then ultimately he sees it in the garden of Gethsemane when he hears the whispers of maybe there's another way maybe you don't have to do this but still he says not my will but thy will be done still he remains faithful and dies not for his sin but for the sin of the world. That's all very nice to tie that together, but then what what has it got to do with us? How do we get there? Why is this bow such an important thing for us? Why is his temptation and reception of the sin such a a significant thing for us? Well, to to do that again, you have to harken back to the Old Testament. You have to remember the stories. Remember what Jeremiah said? No longer will you have to write thus and thus and teach your children to say so and so. But I will write my law on your heart. Now that doesn't mean he's going to get an ink pen and inscribe it, you know, get a tattoo your heart or something. What it means is it's what you're going to want to do. It's what you're going to choose to do. I'm going to provide the way in which you can get beyond the law to the heart and intent of God. That's really what the goal is. And that's why Peter, in the epistle that we read this morning, begins to talk about the flood as being the the forerunner of baptism. The beginning of what we have received in baptism. Because you see, in baptism, the way now has been cleared for us to be able to do that which God calls us to do. To follow God in ways that He wants us to follow Him. So, in practical terms, that's what Lent is really all about. It's a journey, a wandering, if you will, th- through the wilderness of our own sinfulness. Now, most of the time, we'd like to take a journey through the wilderness of somebody else's sinfulness. I can't tell you how many times i preach preached a sermon and had people say, I just wish so-and-so had been here to hear that. <laughs> i thinking, well, maybe it would be good for you, too. <laughs> you never know but we don't like looking at our sin do we we're pretty quick to point out other people's sins you know, if you don't believe that just pay attention to the commercials for the next two weeks with the political ads they'll point out all the p- sins of everybody and then we'll do it all over again in the fall the only thing that really astounds me about it is that we're shocked that, that we have uh, people running for office who are sinners um but every year we seem to be horrified by the fact that there are actually sinners out there. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, is it's not the sinners that bother me. It's not the sinners in politics. It's not the sinners in, in the church. It's not the sinners in the world that bother me so much. It's the one who think they're not. Those are the scary ones. And, what's the, and And the worst of them are the ones who convince themselves that they're not. You know, because that's what we're taught to do, isn't it? When you go to apply for a job, imagine this scenario. You sit down in front of your potential boss and they say, so I see you know what your strengths and all are from your resume. Tell me exactly what it is you think you would be bad at doing in this job. What would you say? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) answering questions like that. But in reality, wouldn't that be much more helpful to know? And yet, that's exactly the way it works. And so what we do is we always... And we do it when we date, too, when we're courting someone. We don't tell them our bad habits. We tell them our wonderful attributes. They even become magnified. Have you ever noticed that? Um. It goes on day after day and life after life. It even happens in parishes, by the way. I you know, I came here a long time ago now. It's been, oh gee, almost twenty years and, and when I came the, the you know, the congregation here had sent a profile of who they were. And I can honestly tell you that they didn't look very much like that profile. <laughs> I mean they they look it, it when what you know now fortunately I've been a priest long enough to realize that they're all like that. <laughs> I mean, there's no such thing as something because what they are telling you is what they would like to be like, and if you know that going in, then you know. But in this particular case, I found out in a startling sort of way because I was—it's one of those moments that's emblazoned in your mind. You can picture your surroundings. I was sitting in a white Pontiac van with Jackie Menke, who was senior warden at the time. We were at the red light on Cleveland Avenue out in front of St. Ann's Hospital. How's that for having emblazoned on your mind? And we're just talking about the neighborhoods and I'm trying to figure out where to live, you know, because I haven't moved up here yet. And she says to me, so how do you deal with conflict? And I said, why? <laughs> so I was just wondering. I said, well, do you have a lot of conflict going on? I'd rather let you find that out for yourself. <laughs> that's sort of like saying, by the way, the Grand Canyon's a little bit up ahead of you in the dark, but I'd rather you figured out where it was yourself. <laughs> but that's what we all do. And and the truth of the matter is that's what the clergy who are applying for the positions do too. They don't, rarely do you find a priest. Who, who will tell you the truth. I think the one thing that shocked the search committee that came to see me um, was that they said, who can we talk to in the parish about you? And I said, you can talk to anybody you want to. They said, anybody? I said, yeah, anybody. I don't care. They said, well, are there certain things we shouldn't ask them about? I mean, so they know we're here? I said, yeah, they know they're here. Certain things, no, ask them anything you want to ask them. So they so said, is there anything that, that we should know about Ron? And everybody, almost to a fault, said, if you're expecting the service to start right on time, <laughs> he's probably not really the guy for you. <laughs> um, hey, <laughs> and I lived next door <laughs> when I was there. It was easier. Um, but part of the reason why I did that was that I wanted them to know who I was. Um, because that was what they were going to get. You know, I wanted them to know who I was. And that tells us a lot about how it is that we're going to have the law written in our hearts. You know, to hearken to it, we have to go back to Isaiah again. Isaiah said, Make straight in the desert a highway for your God. Well, is that about interstate road building? I don't think so. What it's about, this desert, make straight in the desert of your own sinfulness. A highway for your God. Clear the way for Him to come and live in you and through you. And to do that, it's going to take some specific things during Lent. You're going to have to wander through this wilderness and inspect each rock that you come to to see what kind of sin it is, and then look at yourself and say, Do this, this one belong to me? Is this mine? Is this my sin? Because the truth is, is if you don't own the sin, you can never be redeemed of it. No one can redeem you of something that isn't yours. Now, by owning, I don't mean relish in it or wallow in it or enjoy it, but acknowledge it. Embrace it. Say, yeah, that's really me. That's what I'm really like. Because in the ownership of it, we now have the opportunity to be freed of it in Christ. If we don't own it, we can get nowhere. Do you know what the number one step to overcome alcoholism is? Yeah, it's, and who do you have to admit it to? That's what's interesting. No, admit to yourself is the easy one. Publicly, you have to tell people, I am an alcoholic. Because if you keep the secret and you know you're an alcoholic and nobody else does, guess what happens? You fall over and over and over again. Can you see how how this is the same for every sin? All these secrets that we keep just enable us to live more and more and more into the sin that's killing us. And yet, how many times do you hear the church as being a place that is truly confessional? It truly is filled with people who admit to their sins. Who say, this is my sin. Who can just confess it out loud. And acknowledge it. And yet, if you can't do it here, where would you be able to do it? Where would be a place that would accept it? The world's not going to accept it, I'll guarantee you that. You know, they're looking for the weakness in your armor to get at you. But where's the place where we can go and be real? Because the truth is that until you confess it, you cannot overcome it. Just like the alcoholic, until they admit they're an alcoholic, they can't begin the process of overcoming it. You know, until we begin to look at these rocks and really say, "Yes, this is me." and own it, we can't overcome it. We can't clear it. Because if you go up and there's a big boulder there and you go, let's see, pride, pride, pride. No, that's not me. And you you walk around it. Guess what happens to the rock? It stays there. Is that clearing? Make straight the paths of God, a highway for your God? No. That's saying, sorry, detour. Not this one. And all too often... We don't want to see those things. And the hardest ones are the ones we don't even want to see ourselves. That we don't want to admit. The one thing I've found as you wander through the wilderness and you ask God to reveal to you your sinfulness is that they show up. That's what's really frightening about it. Is he shows you. And I use the illustration of a rock. And the reason why I use that illustration is because What we need to do during Lent through this journey is to pick up the rock. Don't leave it there. Put it in your backpack. Take it with you. Move on to the next one. Because it is in owning these things that we are clearing the way. And ultimately, the goal is to get to the cross. To carry all of this pride. All of this vainglory. Don't you love that term? Vain glory. Do you know anybody who has vain glory? There are an awful lot of people who have vain glory. You know, selfishness, gossip, slander, all those things we just read about in the Great Litany. The very first thing translated, very first service in English, by the way, was what we did this morning in the Great Litany. All of those things stand between us and our God. Stand between us and that bow that shoots straight and hits the target every time. Because we can't, but he can. He can't write the law in our hearts if we don't open the way for him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, he says in Revelation. And then what, what's the very next sentence? Anybody remember? If you open, if anyone opens, I will come in and abide with them. But there's that caveat there, isn't it? If anyone opens... And all too often we don't want to open. Because to open means, ooh, the world might find out I'm a glutton. I'm glad you all don't know that. <laughs> the world might find out I'm an adulterer. Some of you probably don't know that. You know, but I am. I'm Judas, my marriage to Judy is my third marriage. And for a long time I thought, I just keep picking bad people. It's their fault. They're evil. And I had a therapist once that said, a Christian therapist, who said to me, why do you suppose you're picking them then? I hated that question. <laughs> Just turned it right back on me. And what I realized was that I was looking for unconditional love that I never got at home. I wanted a, a, a spouse who would be, give me unconditional love always and you know when you're dating people they really do that don't they i mean they're just they'll do anything oh yes dear whatever you like <laughs> um and then i couldn't understand how they could change and it wasn't until i realized that i was the problem not them it was me that i became freed from it and and thanks be to god oddly enough in not looking for unconditional love I found the person who loves me more unconditionally than anyone else ever has. And Judy, isn't that weird? That when I gave it up, I got more of it than I'd ever gotten. Not that she does it unconditionally, because she's human like everybody else. And I tell people, if you want unconditional love, go to God or get a dog. That's all you've got. I mean, there's no other hope. You know, Both of them.